God foreknew Israel. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. God, his foreknowledge. And I don't mean just looking down the pipeline, seeing what's going to happen. No, he knew Israel from all eternity. He knew us. And he saves those who are his own. And his eternal purposes that I'm quoting out of Romans 8 that are true of the individual, he brings that same vocabulary here and uses it, notice, of Israel, the nation. Welcome to Downtown Bible Class with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. Today we continue on our study of the book of Romans. Pastor Scott brings a message titled, God's Remnant. We invite you to follow along with us now as we get started. The 11th chapter of Romans... You know, this uh, section of Romans teaches us so much about God's dealings in history. Teaches us so much about God's dealings with Israel. Teaches us really so much about God. And the great need in our lives is to know God as He really is. I was uh, thinking on it as we sang about that. You know, the people who know their God, the Bible says, the people who know their God will display strength and take action. And so my prayer, even as we gather for a little bit of time in His Word, is that we'll come away with a deeper knowledge of who He really is. You know, we need, uh, as I said, to really know God, who He is, what He's like. Not a one-sided, distorted view of God. Every generation, I think, has a tendency to grab its favorite attribute of God and cling to it and forget the full picture that the Scripture gives. Look over at uh, verse 22 of Romans 11. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. And you know, you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, and this section, as I've been telling you, comes together. I mean, it's, it's all one piece And you see the kindness and the severity of God. When Jesus Christ came to earth, we're told, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full, permeated, full of grace and truth. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. Oh, it is so good to know God. And I uh, repeat it, as we give ourselves to this scripture, why God uses it to show us what he is really like. And in the world of sin, you're going to see God in his kindness, in his grace, and in severity, and exercising his judgment according to truth. And we need to represent him. We're called to be his representatives. We need to represent him to a watching world as such. Now we left off chapter 10. You know, uh, he's pointed out, and it's such a clear statement, even as he's dealing with Israel and teaching about his dealings with Israel, you learn so much about his dealings with us, and you learn so much about him and about the gospel for today. And he's, he, we left off with him making the gospel so clear, and yet Israel rejecting it. And God stretching his arms out to Israel and proclaiming to them a finished work. 
You know, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess Him with your mouth. Believe in your heart and you'll be saved. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, Jew or Gentile alike, He's abounding in riches for all who call upon Him. Verse, uh, what is it, 12 of chapter 10. He'll, come, he'll, he'll lavish riches on you today. I don't care what your background is if you'll come to Him. But Israel refused Him. And so we left off, look at verse 21, with, he says, all day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. If you go back, he's quoting Isaiah, and I mentioned last time he's quoting right out of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. But if you go back and just read Isaiah 65, verse 1 and 2, which he quotes there in verse 20 and 21, uh, our English Bible, translated from the Hebrew, kind of gives us two views of this, two inspired views, because uh, the Holy Spirit chose to choose the wording he chose the, from the Septuagint in verse 21 and give us the Greek rendering. And he says, they're a disobedient and obstinate people that I've got my arms stretched out to. You go back and read it in the English uh, from Isaiah, and he says it's a rebellious people who follow the wrong way and follow their own thoughts. And we talked about that as we closed last time. What a picture that is of disobedience and obstinance and unbelief in our day. Go your own way. Do what you think is right rather than submitting to God's way. And that's what Israel did. And Israel rejected the good news of Christ. But chapter 11 follows right on the heels of that. And chapter 11 shows us that God isn't finished with Israel. And I want to just glance at the chapter with you for a second, and then we'll get into the early verses. But uh, if you were to break the chapter down, and I think it's helpful to just to see where he's going, he, first of all, in the first, what, 10 verses, he shows that Israel's unbelief is not total. As a nation, yes. They rejected him, but the the unbelief of Israel was not total. And then from verse 11, really to the end of the chapter, but down through verse 32 is the end of his argument. He says Israel's unbelief is not final either. And God's purposes in history are going to be accomplished and God's promises to the nation will be accomplished. You could break it down uh, similarly and say in verses 1 through 10, God's present election of some election of a remnant. In verses 11 through 24, his future reception of more, and verses 25 through 32, the final salvation of the nation after he brings them through the purge and purges away unbelief, all Israel, we're told in verse 25, will be saved. So you kind of get a sweep of where God's going, but uh, I would encourage you to think of the chapter as God, as Paul kind of bringing forward some witnesses to show that God isn't done with Israel. Even though the gospel goes out today to Jew and Gentile alike, and even though the nation has by and large rejected him and they're a disobedient and obstinate people, just like anyone, Jew or Gentile, who spurns the gospel could be described as a disobedient and obstinate people or person, God can overrule, and God is not done with Israel. And so Paul brings up a variety of witnesses. He brings up himself, he brings up the remnant, he brings up the Gentiles, he brings up the patriarchs, he brings up God himself. Now, having said that, 
Look at verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be. Has God rejected His people? This is the ninth time out of ten when Paul raises a question in Romans. It's one of his favorite ways of making a point. Ten times he raises questions and then answers them. May it never be. Don't even think that way. Absolutely not. And this is the ninth time. And you know, you think back and it's good to a little bit. Just think back to what he's done because it is a great teaching method. And God uses it here in Romans to get our attention because Paul is often arguing with skeptics. He's often arguing with Jewish unbelievers. In the book of Romans, he's often arguing with you and me, as we bring up our little arguments against the gospel. And you think back to chapter 3, he said, listen, because some people are unfaithful, does that nullify the faithfulness of God? Just because some people don't believe Him? May it never be. Is there unrighteousness with God? May it never be. Well, then does Christ somehow nullify the law? May it never be. He gets to chapter 6 and he says, well, what then, should because of grace, should we just sin? May it never be. And I tell you, every time, and you can do, you can take those ten occurrences, every time he brings it up, it's a, it's a very important point. And almost exclusively in Romans, it deals with the very character of God. So he raises questions that Satan raises in our minds, that people raise, sometimes in what we'd call innocence and sometimes in malice of forethought, you know. But either way, he answers these questions with devastating response. First of all, may it never be. And then he goes into detail. So he says here, has God rejected his people? No way. They may have rejected him, but he hasn't rejected them. And he will not let his promises fall to the earth, you might say. When God says something, he means it. And so Paul says, may it never be, right off the bat here. And you know, the Scripture answers so many different ways. The 94th Psalm says, the Lord will not abandon His people, nor will He forsake His inheritance. The Hebrew prophet Jeremiah, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moons and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is His name. If this fixed order departs, if the sun quits rising, if the ocean quits stirring out there, if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Oh, no. He says, I'm not going to let these things just go. Or over in the 33rd chapter, he said, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, have you not observed what this people have spoken, saying the two families which the Lord chose, Israel and Judah, he has rejected them. Thus they despise my people. No longer are they as a nation in their sight. And you know, that's been true of much of history. It's been a temptation to just despise Israel and uh, think of them as a destroyed nation. They were, it seemed, scattered all over the world and still are, really, even though they have, in our 
lifetimes we've seen they're coming back as a nation but uh, it's been tempting to say what they said in jeremiah's day he he's he's despised them they're no longer a nation in his sight thus says the lord if my covenant for day and night stand not and the fixed patterns of heaven and earth i have not established then i would reject the descendants of jacob and david my servant not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of abraham isaac and jacob but i will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them i am not done with Israel, he says. Paul says, God has not rejected his people. May it never be. And then he first uses himself. He uses two illustrations here. First, himself, personally. And then secondly, the remnant of Israelites that were saved in Elijah's day. Now watch what he does. He says, verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Listen, he says, I'm an Israelite. And he uses his personal history to illustrate that God is sovereignly saving Israelites today and will yet in the future. And he's going to move that direction in the whole chapter 11. But, you know, Paul's uh, personal history, it's interesting that uh, I think we should really study it. Uh, He's just a man like us. He's a sinner like you and me. But he's a man that God saved miraculously like you and me if you're saved. may not be as dramatic in my case or your case as Paul's case, but it's always as dramatic when you really pull back the curtain and see what really takes place. And that's why heaven rejoices when a sinner is saved. And Paul's conversion is recorded for us three times in the book of Acts. He doesn't just tell us what took place and then drop it. He gives us chapter 9 and gives the details. Then you come to chapter 22 and Paul recounts it again. And you get to chapter 26 and he recounts it yet again. And it's for our instruction. It's for our instruction. And it's an illustration of salvation for any sinner. Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. Listen to what Paul said uh, in one of the last letters he wrote. I'm just telling you the three times when he, uh, when it's actually recorded the events of it, you know, in Acts. But listen to what he said when he wrote to Timothy toward the end of his life. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. And yet for this reason I found mercy. In order that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, in effect, listen, if he could save me, he can save you. He saved me as an, as an example of his patience. When I think what I was, and he tells it here, I'm quoting, I'm reading out of 1 Timothy chapter 1, I was a violent aggressor, I was a blasphemer, and he saved me. If he can save me, he can save you. And I'll tell you today, I don't care what you've done, I don't care uh, how long you've spit at him, so to speak, how long you've trampled on his grace today, if you hear his voice, You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. 
He, the chief of sinners, the foremost of all sinners was saved, and it's an example for all sinners in every age, and it's an example for today. But secondly, it seems to me you can't read this without seeing that Paul is an example, it's an illustration, that Jews were coming to Christ right here and now. And he goes on and uses it that way. He says, verse 5, In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Uh, Jews were coming to Christ. Now granted, the nation was by and large turning away from him, but Paul points out that there was a remnant, a remnant according to God's gracious choice, even as he wrote, there was a gracious remnant, and uh, he was part of it. And then thirdly, I think that uh, Saul of Tarsus, this one who hated Christ, who was rejecting Christ, and not just rejecting Him, but actively pursuing Christ. So that when Christ met Him, He said, why are you persecuting Me? He was dragging Christians out of homes. I don't think we can read this without seeing that it's a picture of God's future restoration of Israel, His Son, because Israel rejected Him. He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. He came to his own and they said, we have no king but Caesar. His blood be on us and on our children. The awful nature of Israel's rejection. And yet on that road to Damascus, Saul of Tarsus, breathing murderous threats, we're told, met Christ. And you know, my Bible tells me in Zechariah chapter 12 that one day Israel today still in unbelief, still rejecting the gospel of grace. One day they will look on me, Zechariah says, whom they have pierced. Thus says the Lord, they're going to look on me and they're going to realize. And the book of Revelation opens with a quote of that. And you trace through Zechariah 12, 13, and 14, you can get the whole history of it. But I simply read verse 8 and 9 of chapter 13. And I believe this refers to yet a future time when there will be this purge of Israel's unbelief, the time of Jacob's distress, the great tribulation, when much of Israel will be judged. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. Uh, The unbelief will be purged out and the believing remnant will turn in humility and repentance. And Paul's conversion is a picture of that. So I read in Zechariah, I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Two parts, two-thirds will be cut off and perish, but he will bring forward and bring through the fire the one-third, Zechariah says. And then chapter 14, he talks about the return of Christ and the millennial blessing. But we're going to get to that. I mean, that's basically where Romans 11 is headed toward the end of chapter 11. But right now, Paul simply uses his personal history as a foreshadowing of that. And then he asks the question again. Look at verse 2. God has not rejected his people, has he, whom he foreknew? May it never be. May it never be. God foreknew Israel. Now, we rejoiced in this, didn't we? As individual believers back in chapter 8, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined 
to become conformed to the image of His Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom He predestined, these He also called, and whom He called, these He also justified, and whom He justified, these He also glorified. God, His foreknowledge, and I don't mean just looking down the pipeline, seeing what's going to happen. No, He knew Israel from all eternity. He knew us, and He saves those who are His own. And his eternal purposes that I'm quoting out of Romans 8 that are true of the individual, he brings that same vocabulary here and uses it, notice, of the of Israel, the nation. He foreknew Israel. And Amos says, you know, uh, you only have I known Israel among all the nations. And that's right in the midst of saying everything he knew about Moab and Ammon and Syria and all the other countries. So he knows all about us. But he says, you only have I known Israel. And he uses that special language of love knowledge. He knows Israel and he says, has God rejected his people whom he foreknew? No way. Don't you know? Look at the rest of the verse. Do you not know what the scripture says in Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they've killed thy prophets. They've torn down thine altars and I alone am left. And they're seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Now, watch what he's doing here. First, he says... Has God rejected his people? No way. I'm an Israelite. I'm an illustration of this. And then he says, what about, what does the scripture say? And he cites scripture and he goes back to the time of Elijah. Notice, uh, and I just say this kind of parenthetically. Look at, look at how he says that. Did you see that verse two? Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? But did you see there in the passage is in italics? That's really not in the Greek text. They fill it in in English to make it read smoother. But he basically says, don't you know what the Scripture says in Elijah? And this was written, you remember, before chapters and verses. So I'm, you know, I say, well, that's in, you know, 1 Kings 18 and 19. But they don't talk that way. He just says what it says in Elijah. And Jesus said, when they came to him and thought they'd trick him, you know, with the question about marriage and heaven and what about the gal that was, you know, her husband kept dying and she'd marry his brother. And you remember that story? Jesus said, what does the scripture say? Haven't you read in, and then he just says, in the bush. <laughs> he uses the same thing. And our English smooths it out. But he couldn't say, haven't you read in Exodus 2 or 3? He went, because they didn't have the numbers yet. So he just referred to it. And uh, that's the way they would cite Scripture. And so Paul just simply says here, didn't you read in Elijah? There was no book Elijah. It was just the passage about Elijah. You've been listening to Downtown Bible Class with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. Please stay with us. Pastor Scott will return in just a moment with a preview of our next broadcast. Today's program was titled, God's Remnant, a message from our series in the book of Romans. 
If you missed a portion of the message heard on the program today or you'd like to share it with a friend, head on over to downtownbible.org. A free copy of today's entire message is available there for you to stream or download at your convenience. We're thrilled to announce the publication of a new book written by Pastor Scott Gilchrist. It's called A Brief Exposition of Romans. It's a 266-page chapter-by-chapter commentary on Romans that we're sure will enhance your understanding of this critical book in the New Testament. The book is available online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and most other online booksellers. But during our study of Romans, we'd like to send you a copy as a thank you for a gift of any amount to the ministry of Downtown Bible. You can find us online at downtownbible.org or by mail at P.O. Box 19191, Portland, Oregon, 97280. We'd love to put this valuable resource in your hands. If you don't have a church home in the area, Pastor Scott would love to invite you to join us in person for our Sunday worship services at Southwest Bible Church. That's each Sunday morning at 8.30 and 11 a.m. at the church located at the corner of Southwest Murray and Weir Road in Beaverton. You can go to our website at swbible.org for more details. We hope to see you there. Now, before we end our time today, let's go to Pastor Scott for a preview of our next broadcast. And now that Paul's gone around the Roman Empire, yes, most of the synagogues threw him out. And the nation officially didn't want to hear, but in each city, he'd go to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he says, I'm an Israelite. In Elijah's day, there was a remnant that God kept. Notice verse 4, I have kept for myself. In the same way then, verse 5, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Yes, they might be disobedient and obstinate as a nation, but God is calling Jew and Gentile out today. God is in charge and he is calling out a people for his name. And he is doing so by his gracious choice, and we are to proclaim that gospel. Join us again next time as we continue our series through the book of Romans. Pastor Scott brings part two of the message titled, God's Remnant. Until then, may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you.